This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Y- yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and... <laughs> I fucked up our opening again. <laughs> I'm sorry. I tried to do your part because I'm so selfish. I'm such a Christopher narcissist. is taking my lines. <laughs> we were having a really intense conversation about our lunch order and I was distracted going into this episode. <laughs> Happy Pride Month, everyone. Happy Pride Month. Happy Gay Pride. Mm-mm-mm. Right? We're very proud to be gay and... Uh... So we like to take extra time to celebrate, but we still do the usual stuff. It's still true crime TV club, right? Exactly. We try and give it a um, a slant to the community, or the holiday, or the time of year, or this particular month. And today's uh, choice was really kind of no exception. And wow, yeah, wow, wow. what a story! It was. It's a expansive and dark story. And dark, yes. But I have to say. Following the through line was really kind mm-hmm. of remarkable. We, we we watched a show called um, Deep Water, the real story, mm-hmm. which is a documentary about a really sort of a long period of um, anti-gay violence um, in and around Sydney, mm-hmm. the Australian city of Sydney. And then we also followed that up by watching um, – which is actually what we originally started out to right. do, mm-hmm. um, a half-hour um, YouTube, it right. is, recount of what – so we, it actually takes you all the – for me, being the age that I am, it took me all the way through the whole kind of – the struggle that has happened in the community, in the gay community in my lifetime mm-hmm. of, you know, violence like – what are you going to do? They were gay. You know, mm-hmm. like nobody cares. Nobody gives a shit to a place where 
justice has actually begun to happen and it's no longer okay and we've moved to like you know what i mean like it it mm-hmm. had that sort of mm-hmm. um property to it which i was i in the end while it's a long walk it took me to a place of like okay mm-hmm. you know it's not over and it's not fixed mm-hmm. but it's a, so much better than it was when i started right exactly was kind of the the way that it took me through. It's a it's a movie, so I don't know if we're gonna recount it. How did you want to talk well, about it? Well, this do, is are, the thing: we... as we talk about this type of story, this is similar. To, this is not a serial killer tale necessarily. And I, when we when you when you look at those, or you you serve them up, or you try to relate the fundamental facts of those cases, a lot of what is necessarily done in the coverage of stories like these is a victim by victim accounting. And we definitely want to honor the victims, but at the same time, for us to just sort of sit here and tell you the same story of the of a very similar attack over and over again is maybe not going to make for the most engaging listening. But I think what the documentary really does is it goes through, as you just said, these series of hideous anti-gay attacks and murders in and around Sydney, and then it gets to the moment of reckoning, which is closer to the present day. And I think the thing that got my attention around this case currently is that there is a current headline out of Australia around one of the attacks um, that's involved in this larger narrative and an attack that the authorities resisted including into the larger narrative. And to me, that's the bigger story is that it's not – the individual attacks are certainly important and certainly the the, the people who were injured and killed um, over this this crime spree, this 30-year crime spree – are significant, and I don't want to erase them, but the thing that really stood out for me was the prevailing attitude of of people and the authorities for that time period mm-hmm. of, like, oh, it's just gay people, who cares? Right. Was really, to me, that's the bigger story of this kind of crime. It certainly has been the case most of my life in this country. Right. And let me, let me, let me I think there's a way to sort of break down the atta- the crimes that we're talking about without without cheapening them or glossing them over. Okay, so there was an area around Bondi Beach in Sydney that was known as a kind of gay cruising spot. They called it a beat. They, they kept calling it a beat, and which it, I like, guess is an Australian term. I, I need our Austra- We have a wonderful Australian listener, Simon Ammer. I'm sure is still out there. Like like write in and and tell us is this a terminology we're not familiar with here in the United States? But yeah, a gay beat. Because I kept thinking, are they saying beach? And the accent is keeping me from understanding I it. No. I think yeah. it's a gay beat was what I was getting, which, okay, sure. I, it seemed, but it seemed to me to mean that, that this was a cruising area. Right. So in, in two of the instances, we have men whose dead bodies are discovered at the bottom of cliffs, right? And we have authorities who want to insist that these are suicides. But there is evidence that they are not suicides, that they were not suicidal, that the um, bodies are too far and in the wrong position for it to be a deliberate jump. That's they 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 landed in a way that suggests force that they know? were thrown. Yeah, and this is laced into other accounts like the one from David McMahon, which opens deep water of being assaulted by roving gangs of youths in this area that were going there specifically 
to assault and attack gay men who were known to be in this area and in the bushes and trying to meet each other. This this environment is not unique to Australia. We have plenty. Of, we had plenty of these areas here in the United States, and and plenty know, similar situations. Yeah, of, exactly of people being assaulted, people being forced out of any sort of people being put in an, a position of antisocial behavior, like mm-hmm. hooking up between two men was not allowed, and so doing it became was a criminal thing or could be. Yeah. And people made choices that they made because it was the only alternative available. If they'd been able to meet at the sock hop or the high school prom or in yeah. places where everybody else does, mm-hmm. then it would be like it it is the continuing it's like with the don't say gay thing. Like mm. it is the continuing misperception mm-hmm. that Somebody that this is sex when it's gay people, but when it's straight people, it's not sex. Like, right. The thing that I would say to the the enforcement of the don't say gay law mm-hmm. is that fine. Then no pregnant teachers because that's about sex, right. and no engagement rings because that's about sex, mm-hmm. and no talking about your wedding or your baby shower or your or your um, bridesmaids or your uh any of the or, or any of those kinds of things because all of those things are a discussion of your sex life. In fact, talking about your family and your children yes, is a discussion of your sex life. It is it is that misperception. And in this case, people were being misperceived, trying just trying to meet other people. And I think the thing the documentary makes clear is that the laws against homosexuality in Australia were repealed in 1984, but the culture had not changed. And specifically, the culture of law enforcement had not changed. And so their attitude was that these are criminals, these are perverts. If they're going into this area, they're asking for trouble. But the blanket explanation that these had to be sued. There's, so, so there's one, there, there are two that involve bodies, right? And then there's one local newscaster who just goes missing. They, and they find his keys down on a rock uh, below these cliffs where all this activity is happening, and the keys don't look like they've fallen there. They look like they have been placed there. But his body, and I believe to this date, has never been found. But at the time, he must be suicidal. If he was gay, he's suicidal. If he's out there, he's suicidal. All this sort of stuff. So this was just a complete decision not to investigate I think covering up that if something their belief that if something bad happened to them out there, they had brought it on themselves, right? It's you know victim blaming essentially. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That yeah. it was no, there was no crime because it was gay people. Um, the the one that really stood out in the Deep Water documentary because we watched two things and we've posted these links on our Facebook page. We have the Deep Water documentary, and then on YouTube we found a half hour special of a series called Australian Story. Um, which has one of those weird YouTube search friendly titles. It's not actually suicide or murder is how you find it, and it is an episode of this show that that goes into deeper detail on one of the cases that has made headlines most recently. But the case in deep water that had me sitting forward in my chair is one in which, and I want to make sure I get the names right. There was a gentleman who had left. Um, this is when the lens starts to widen out from Bondi Beach and include other parts of Sydney. Right. Uh, this gentleman, I believe his name was Alan uh, Rosendale, leaves the gay bars on Oxford Street, I think, which is the big gay area in town there. And uh, he goes into the park looking to meet someone and immediately finds himself pursued by a gang of uh, youths bearing baseball bats, he thinks. Simultaneously to this event, another gentleman 
uh, whose name is Paul something. I'm going to get it up in my notes Paul right here. Paul Symes. Paul Symes. He's also a gay man. I think he's leaving the same area. He's driving in his car, and he sees a car really just speed in front of him, speed to a stop. This gang gets out, he thinks. Someone goes around to the trunk, which I believe they call the boot. I think that's also true in the UK. I the think boot. that's the, yes. And starts handing out what he thinks are planks. And then they run into the park. And then the next thing Paul sees is Alan Rosendale running out of the park, being pursued by these plank-bearing youths, he thinks, again. And they just start wailing on him. And Alan trips him. and yeah. falls in basically in front of... Paul's car. Right. So Paul uh, puts his headlines, uh, headlights on bright. He tries to drive up to them to make them stop. They will not stop. There's no reaction. And he's yeah. only one unarmed one person. Yeah. So he pulls around and takes the license plate number right. of the car that they got out of, and then he goes to get help. Yeah. Uh, he calls 000, which I believe is their 911 there in the Australia. He gives them the plate makes number. so much more sense. I know, because it's just right there. 999 yeah. is the one that makes the most sense to me. Why is it? Because of where it is on the keypad? Because it's just 999. Yeah. Like, you just keep hitting the button, you know. Like, zero has other functions. Yeah, totally. But nine doesn't. Yeah. Like, 911 is like, oh, because what I need to do is... Dial, press extra buttons. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. So, um... Too late to change it now. Yeah. It's like driving on the wrong side. Um, yeah, okay, so he, um... Alan is sent to the hospital. He's there for six days. And by the time Paul gets back, nobody is there. Yeah, exactly. He returns to the site of the, the accident or the assault. Excuse There's me. nothing there. There's no yeah. sign of anything. I don't know how Alan got to the hospital, and Alan didn't seem to know either. He didn't. He says he comes to in the hospital, and he barely remembers a visit from the police, but there's a lot he doesn't remember. He's there for six days. Paul, meanwhile... Gets a call from a man who identifies himself as the first gay liaison to the police department. And he tells Paul that the plate number that he reported belongs to an unmarked police car. Paul is then called into a high-level meeting at police headquarters. And he knows this is high-level because the office has an amazing view. And the men in attendance are wearing gold braid and epaulets, which is apparently how senior... Stars and all kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like, yeah, he's gone to see the big guys. And one of these senior officers pulls out this, I don't know, you used to call them billy clubs. A truncheon. Yeah, a truncheon, and says, is this what you saw the gang using on Allen? And he says, yes. And he says, this is police issue. This is what we give our... And it turns out the cops were using something that they called hoodlum patrols, and these were plainclothes groups of men uh, who went around in unmarked cars, and their job was to sort of clean up the streets like boots on the ground, but what they were doing a lot of was what they called poofta bashing, which is, you know, an Australian version of fag bashing, essentially. Um, The idea of the meeting, it turns out, was to give Paul the impression that this issue was being looked into. But in November of 2014, which was years after this happened, the New South Wales Minister of Police stated that no evidence had been found to implicate the police in the assault. Despite the evidence that they presented to the witness in this meeting. And the fact that he gave them the license plate of a police car. Yeah. Um, No evidence could be found. No evidence. 
so okay. It, it, <laughs> and that's kind of the theme. Yeah. And they interviewed a wide variety of people, advocates, people who are working in the system. The I think the current coroner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of, and that was my impression that woman from this. Is, who was speaking in all the different levels of this. Yeah, Jacqueline uh, Midge, I think, or something like that. We'll get to her again, and I'll get her name correctly. But Jacqueline was her first name. Uh, my impression is that in Australia, a coroner is a big deal. Like they were, they were suited as judges and presiding over inquest, coronial inquest, they called them, which I assume means the coroner's inquest. I assume so. It was way. They seemed way more integrated into the criminal justice system than just some. Um, office that rendered a pathological report or an autopsy report. Yeah, I, coroner's hearing, I think, determines whether or not the there is evidence to indicate that there is a crime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we do a version of that here or not. I don't know if we do it, but it is presented to a judge. This looked like, in the footage we were seeing, the coroner and the judge for this procedure looked like the same person. Or maybe I was confusing it. Again, our Australian listeners... Our Australian party people can correct there us. There are slight differences in the legal systems in different areas, so it, we didn't know enti- exactly how things unfolded. But certainly she was presented as an authority figure talking about yeah. the nature of these cases. And, yeah, no matter what evidence they brought, no matter what um, unfolded, the – they just didn't investigate. There was just literally – there was no evidence and it was either a suicide if there was a body or right. if it was an attack, then there was just no evidence. And the gentleman that we told you about who simply disappeared, whose keys were found, the newscaster, his name was Ross Bradley. And um, starting in July 16th, 1998, his family asked for a coroner's inquest to close the case of his disappearance to make it clear that he was dead. He was not just missing – and they received no reply and no reply and no reply and no reply and no reply. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? 
Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So we want to kind of give you a, an inventory, if you will, of the the victims that we are introduced to. The, the atmosphere yeah. that we're talking about, the kind of reign of terror that gay people were living with in and around the city. They were certainly at the Gay Beats, but in a variety of places. One man was murdered in his own home. Yeah. There were there were two of these cases were connected to a school, to a high school. There was a public Charming. restroom close to these high school grounds, which was sort of known as a place for public sex, and men were writing phone numbers on the walls. of And so a gang of youths went in there. They called one of the numbers on there to lure a gentleman to the um, restroom, a gentleman by the name of Richard Johnson, and they lured him to the bathroom. They sat upon him. They stomped him so badly he died of internal bleeding. The ripple effect of that case was that the young students at the high school were arrested. There was incredible controversy around whether or not they should be charged, which was like, really? They didn't even realize it was a crime to kill gay people. Right. That's the attitude that they were living with and living under. There was a teacher at the high school by the name of Wayne Tonks who was apparently terrified of being outed and was very secretive about his life. But as a result of the conversations about this murder, he kind of got into it with a student who was being uh, verbally anti-gay. Um, they had words. Um, Wayne, Tonks and, uh, Wayne Tonks went to his uh, superior about it. Um, several days later, he was discovered. He wasn't responding to calls. He didn't show up for work. He was discovered badly bound and beaten and dead in his apartment. They said there was so much tape around his wrists, it was like they had put his hands and they used some term for I don't know a, cement. A cement. It was just a horrible murder. Okay. On top of that, we still at Bondi Beach. We have a gentleman. A gentleman named John Russell, whose body was found at the base of the cliffs. His brother, Peter Russell, and his father, Ted Russell, are both being told this is a suicide. They don't believe it, but they can't get anywhere. He just inherited a bunch of money right. and was getting ready to start a new business and was really in a kind of an amazing place. And they talked extensively about how accepted he was and how people knew who he was. It wasn't a secret about him being who he was, and he was just out for an evening, and mm -hmm. um, they threw him off the cliff. Yeah. And uh, uh, so th this, is, <laughs> this is the atmosphere that they're living in. Um, on top of that, as we already discussed, we have the incident in which Paul Symes was driving home from the bar and saw Alan Rosedale set upon by a gang of youths, and then in a meeting with senior police officers, they imply to him that these were un undercover officers, essentially, who were working as part of a of a of a, a gang. So, along the way, um, a pathologist is hired to look at the individual case of John Russell, whose body was discovered at the base of a cliff. His name is Dr. Alan Kala. 
And he determines that he landed too far from the cliff um, to have not been thrown over by other people. He was um, in the wrong position. His feet were away from the cliff. And, and his, yes, and his distance from the cliff right. suggests propulsion <clears throat> of some point. He's got hairs in his hands, and they don't appear to be his, yeah. right? Um, and he was wearing the head clothing, which they the police laundered. I, I literally, I, when they said that, I, I almost fell out of my chair. They washed his clothes. I mean, they washed away all the evidence on his clothes, and the hairs disappeared. They were never properly preserved. Um, so on, on top of all of this, the police are apparently aware of a group of, of gangs that are moving through these areas and targeting gay men. Because at the very beginning of the episode, we're introduced to David McMahon. And, and he says in 1989, he had, while he had frequented this area to meet men, he was just out for a jog one night when this gang kind of menaced him and started chasing him and then surrounded him. And it was a mixed gender gang. It was men and women. And they were beating him with sticks of wood. And it was actually one of the women trying to encourage one of the guys to stick the stick up his ass, because that's what he'd like. That's the direct quote. And maybe they did. It was not clear. And then they were dragging him off to a cliff where they threw that other guy off that time. That's what they say. Let's throw him where we throw that other guy. So, and he's taken into the cops. He's shown suspect photos. And he identifies people. And nothing ever happens. Ever. 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 And he lives and works in the neighborhood, so he was living in fear that they would come for him. Yeah. There's an interesting interview going back to the incidents around the high school with the former principal of the high school at the time. And he describes, in his opinion, what was happening in the toilets, the public toilets, sexually, as moral depravity. Okay, so I don't really know, like, how is he being positioned? Because then he later gives quotes expressing horror about the murder of these two men, one of whom worked for him, which was the teacher Wayne Tonks. Um, but we're also introduced to, I guess, the guy who was the guidance counselor at the time, Shane Brown, who was, it sounded like openly gay, which was like, okay, and said he tried to develop a kind of friendship with Wayne. And Wayne was so closeted that he would not socialize on school grounds with any other guy who would even be suspected to be gay. Of course, he then loses his temper, probably because all that rage was bottled up in him from living closeted day after day. So these are all um, basically casts of characters that the cast of characters were introduced to along the way. But along the way, we're also introduced to some pivotal kind of law enforcement um, folks. We're introduced to the coroner, Jacqueline, who we will talk about later for sure. We're introduced to a woman who is named Sue Thompson, who is identified as a former gay and lesbian consultant with the New South Wales police. Um, She's going to come back at the end of our story. All these people are sort of being positioned as people who were suffering and acutely aware of what it was like to be queer in Sydney in this day and age. So getting closer to the present day, we have regime changes happening at these police departments. And we have a detective named Steve Page, who's a detective sergeant in homicide, who discovers years... And he is particularly brought on to deal with this. He's like the first liaison Is that what happened? for this particular um, crime complaint. There's been enough growing right. unrest and reporting and a, a rise in attention to this area that they actually 
bring him in? Was it that they brought him in to look at it, or did he discover, as we mentioned earlier, that the family of Ross Bradley, who just went missing and whose keys were discovered in the rocks, he discovered years' worth of letters from the family demanding that there be some sort of inquest to declare this a death as opposed to a missing persons case? I think he discovered those as part of his looking into these crimes. He was, like, brought in as a cold case investigator to look at this issue in a larger— I, it was he was described as some sort of liaison right absolutely. officer who was brought in particularly to deal with and I think the idea was to give the appearance of doing something about it without actually doing something about it because it seems to have been a fairly frustrating experience for him this Steve Page well yeah. he discovers that all the things the cops told the family and friends of Ross Bradley they were doing they didn't actually do there wasn't a missing persons report filed for Ross Bradley at all like nothing had been done yeah. Right. You had just not been investigated. Um, I guess he's also the reason that Dr. Alan Calla does the does um, an examination using a mannequin thrown off a cliff to determine if the John Russell death was suicidal or homicide. Of course, he finds all this evidence of homicide, as we said earlier, with the velocity, the distance from the cliff. Um uh, Steve digs deeper and discovers they had oodles of suspects because they were aware of multiple non-territorial gangs working the area. And I guess the non-territorial thing means they could have gone to separate parts of Sydney. any other parts of Sydney. Yeah. They were just targeting gay people. It was a hate crime gang. Simultaneous to all of this, on the other side of town, which may be too reductive a way to s- decide. The other it, side of the bay. The other side of, on the other side of the Harbor Bridge, right. which is a big landmark, yeah. In a very wooded area, um, in let's see, I'm trying to get the exact year that this happened that we're talking about. This was such a tangled labyrinthine story, but I guess this was the the 80s or the early 90s. 1988. 1988. A a young gay man named Scott Johnson was found dead at the bottom of a cliff. Now, compared to the cliffs we've been talking about in Bondi Beach, this is. A giant cliff, and this is a far more wooded area. And there is apparently this is Manly Beach. This is Manly Beach, exactly. And there's some fierce debate early on about whether or not this is a gay beat. Getting back to that weird. And term just we're using in case earlier. there was any wondering wonder about it, um, the I don't know if he's legendary, but fairly well known producer, mm-hmm. um, uh, Christian Bjorn. Oh, yeah. Actually produced a film called, <laughs> wait for it, Manly Beach. Manly Beach. When do you have a date for Manly from, Beach? From this particular this location. Particular period, yeah. From exactly this time period. I mean, and it is, uh, they show, I have to say the reenactments in this documentary were pretty stylized and unsettling. The way they did, they they recreated some of the attacks and the gangs in a way that was actually, didn't just seem lurid and sensationalist. It was actually like you were there from the camera angles. Um, But they also did these sweeping aerial shots of this area to reveal how isolated it was. And people would go and they would make little love nests in the bushes because they're in the woods, essentially. Um, But But it was a well-known gay beat, as they called them, apparently, in Australia. It was was definitely a place where men went to meet other men for the purposes of hooking up. And there wasn't any doubt about it, but... The, apparently, among anybody except the police who denied that it was ever... On the other side of town, they were doing exactly the same thing. I think it's a different police department. I think we're still in New South Wales, which is like the whole... But it's same story. This yeah. is a suicide. 
Um, this was on yeah. on this day. And it was day, like less than a mile from the actual police station. Exactly. And on this day, uh, Scott Johnson had finished his doctoral dissertation. Like he was celebrating. He'd gone out to the beach to like sunbathe. His and do partner whatever. was out of town. His partner was out of town. He was is, yeah. looking for. He wanted to celebrate, and he took yeah. a. A bus across. He took the ferry, I think, across the harbor and took a bus, or right, went to the other side of town, um, and uh, because they found the bus ticket in his pocket or the ferry ticket, I can't remember which it was. And yeah, uh, yeah. and he went up to sunbathe. The people sunbathe nude there, right? Um, and so he apparently laid out all of his clothes, and and he's found at the base of the cliff, nude. Like, if you're going to a cliff to kill yourself, do you sunbathe first and take off all your clothes? Like, what percentage of suicide cases strip off all of their clothes before that? that like, it's not anything. It's just like there's no indication and there's to no me that no this is a or any, Nobody thought of no. him as being upset. In fact, he was celebratory. He was ebullient. He was incredibly happy and, and very much yeah. Um, looking, yeah, for a good time. He was going to have a ball. And they— um the the at the time apparently his partner was out of town but his partner's sister was living with them and she went on to be a mental health nurse a literal mental health nurse and she says in an interview he exhibited none of the signs of suicide yeah. that morning none none there was nothing suicidal about him so in america his older brother steve johnson doesn't like any of the story that he's hearing none of this makes sense to him so he reaches out to an independent investigative journalist named Dan Glick. And it sounded like they started working together kind of right off. Like they were working together on this story for years. Meanwhile, uh, in the other part well, of... Steve came to Australia within yeah. a pretty short order mm -hmm. of his brother's death. Yeah. And was told that it was, you know, was... You know, not presented with much in the way of evidence or help or pursuit or anything. Right. But he was also like doing his best, but he was like a graduate student or something. He mm -hmm. was not very far along in his life. And so right. it, it limited resources. He did what he could to try and encourage an investigation into his brother's death, but he wasn't even from Australia. Um, trusted that something would happen and um, and returned home, but very much distraught and confused that anybody would say that his brother was suicidal. He just, that was nothing that he had expected. His brother had, had outed himself to him. You know, he was openly, mm -hmm. he was openly gay. He wasn't, there wasn't. They were very close. He wasn't yeah. wrestling with it. He was, um, yeah, they were very close. And he knew that uh, his brother, who, who was apparently really brilliant, really mm -hmm. quite a genius, like one of the upshots of him completing his, uh, dissertation, his doctoral thesis or whatever it was, was that he was pretty much going to be able to write his own ticket anywhere in the mm. world. He was really, really a brilliant man. And the doctorate was sort of the, you know, the final um, bow on that particular package. So he had everything to live for and no reason to kill himself. His brother was baffled, but didn't quite know what to do, but was entirely reliant on the the law enforcement in Australia to handle the situation as he returned back to the United States. <laughs> 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So no to file. If you're a cop who's trying to brush off a case just because you don't want to investigate it, possibly because you're a bigot and a homophobe, the worst possible thing that could happen to you would be if the brother of the victim goes on to become an incredible financial success who develops an amazing set of resources. Who invents apparently how we all send photographs on the internet. He invented that. That is apparently, yeah. That's the brother of Steve Johnson. Yes. So it started out with AOL, but as he said, I think, you know, reasonably, um, humbly, he said, I never wanted to worry about money, and since that happened, I never have had to. And he and that's as much as he said about it. Exactly. But yeah, this is this is really rich. Yeah. And so he dedicates himself and his resources to finding out what really happened with his brother. And he seeks out an investigative journalist named Dan Glick who has apparently got quite some quite a resume. And Glick says to him during their first meeting, I, I need you to know that I'm the type of guy where if I think your brother killed himself, I'm going to tell you that your brother killed himself. I'm going to be as objective about this as possible, even if you're paying me. And that works for Steve Johnson. And he and, says, but he yeah. also says, but if I find out that, that it looks like that he was murdered, I will investigate it like it was my own brother. Yeah, exactly. And that, I think, bonded the two of them together. But he became sort of his eyes and ears on the ground. Like, just find out what happened, because what nobody can believe is that Steve would kill himself. That's yeah. the, that's what he keeps getting confronted with. That was the findings of the um, the 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 commission uh, or whoever the um, mm-hmm. the the investigating officers, and so they keep. He's just like, I just can't believe it. Not only that, but they say that there's no evidence that there had been gay violence at that particular location, and it was not a gay hookup spot. And that's what Dan starts working on. Immediately, he goes out there and he starts interviewing. There is apparently a sewage treatment plant or some sort of water facility. When they give the wide and, shot, there it is. It's like, wow, that's a really beautiful location to put a sewage treatment plant. I was like, <laughs> wow, what a choice. And he says, hey, you guys, he goes up to the workers, does this have a reputation as a gay area? And they're like, oh, yeah. This is like that their little love nests all through those trees. Everybody knows. And it doesn't sound like they're freaked out about it. It's like, yeah, this is where the gays... I mean, it's like, no question. This is the workmen at the plant. This isn't like, you know, interested parties. This is just people who happen to be there. Yeah, totally. And so I guess the next thing that happened, and again, this was where the timeline... I think they worked on this for years, but they get a tip from a man who claims that he was part of a team of bashers who worked as a lure, meaning he was the young, cute one that would go into the air, wooded areas of Manly Beach. He would entice someone to go into an even more remote location, and then his hideous friends would set upon them with um, pipes. You know what's happened to a friend of mine in the New Orleans French Quarter? They, they used a lure on him to get him to leave the bar, 
And then they all sat up on him. He had to have his jaw wired shut. Like it was just this. This was an epidemic. This happened to everywhere. You know, yeah. this kind of. Oh yeah. You know, was, my friend survived. Thank it was God, open but, season. Yeah. And there was very little in terms of the response. One of the things we dealt with on the Billy Newton case was the reluctance of the people involved to actually talk to the police mm-hmm. because it was not a period where there was this great sense of trust. Of trust. Yeah. yeah. I was really surprised. Um, when I moved to West Hollywood to find the level of sensitivity that had been trained into, whether it was held personally held belief or not, but had been trained into mm-hmm. the police force in this little city. Right. Absolutely. But yeah, so there was, there was, it was not a great time. They managed to get um, to a place of getting an inquest. Mm-hmm. 2012, they do get an inquest. They they overturn the original suicide finding, okay? But the result of that is that Glick and uh, Steve Johnson go in to talk to the detective on the case, and he basically says, we have 700 unsolved cases, and this is going to go on the bottom of the stack, which means we will look at it in three to five years, if you're lucky. The cops claim it's not solvable. And again, they say the area wasn't a gay beat, which is like, why do they fucking keep saying this? And obviously it was suicide. So they do what apparently you have to do today, because I've seen this work amazingly in situations even in my own life, where they went to the fucking media. <laughs> and, you know, it feels like you're going to piss off daddy if you do this, but sometimes daddy needs to do his fucking job and there's no other way to get him on the case. Yeah. Um, so they do what in Glick's estimation is a very shitty investigation. They eliminate the persons of interest that they have brought them really hastily. Uh, they continue to give media appearances insisting that it's not a suicide that it is a suicide, excuse me. Um, and then they've so pissed off the coroner that in uh, 2015, there's an unprecedented third inquest right where they basically says, they say, this was not a suicide, and if you do not start fucking investigating this as a homicide... As an attack yeah. on a gay person. This is a gay attack that and happened so, and was... And you can't continue to say that. And so they, once again... So the head of the police, or the, like the head detective woman, in charge... I just wanted to grab, take that wig off her She head. went on their version of Nightline, I think, which is called Late Line, and personally attacked Steve Johnson and said he was using his money to try to get the result he wanted. We've known from the beginning there was only one result he would, that would work for him in this case, and it was like, yes, the, an investigation, you she dumb bitch. everybody above her, all the coroners and the judge and everybody else of kowtowing to him because, because he's the, rich. Because of the money and that, you know, they never eliminated the possibility that he had suicided yeah. and that it was, you know, very much a possibility. There was no evidence, none, absolutely no evidence that it was a suicide other than the fact that he his body was found alone. Right. And so, meanwhile, in, in Greater Sydney, another investigative journalist, a local guy, because Glick was actually an American, Rick Finley, has put together a really probing piece about the Bondi Beach murders and assaults, right? And that has also shined a light on the Alan Rosedale incident involving the hoodlum gangs. And that has become a political issue that ministers are talking about on the floor of parliament, right? So the pressure is mounting all over town, and right? And Alan Rosedale did not know of the existence of Patrick Symes? 
Uh, yes, I, yes. The witness, until he yeah. read about it in the newspaper, Paul, Paul Simes. Paul Simes. Yes, absolutely. Paul Simes. Until he read about it in the newspaper, he remembered the headlights, but he didn't know that somebody yeah. had witnessed the crime. And the police said there was no evidence that there was a connection between the two. That clearly it was just two different incidents of somebody being beaten with truncheons by a gang Jesus in exactly the same location, Jesus but on two different times. Like couldn't possibly have been the same thing. So. The two things are not related, so we couldn't possibly investigate those. Yeah, and so um, the the it, there's an ombudsman, which is one of my favorite words, even though I have no idea what it means. It comes up a lot. Uh, it, they're tasked it's with like a, a public advocate. A public advocate. Well, they did a shitty job in this case. They decide that the police. There's no evidence the police removed or destroyed documents in the Alan Rosedale case, which is like. Was that really the accusation? I think it was just that they didn't do anything, right? There yeah, was, what documents could they possibly what, <laughs> have destroyed? If they didn't write anything down, take any notes, or do any investigation, what would they have been destroyed? What they couldn't prove was that he had met with those higher-level um, police officers or commissioners or whoever. You remember that story right. where he goes to the night, the ritzy office. And right, which is maybe why they did the meeting that that's way. That's the, they yeah. said there was no evidence that that meeting had ever taken place. Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I had to fortify myself with some tea there. Um, so we're getting to the end of the documentary that we watched, right? Which is a very kind of despairing ending. But they say that in 2016, the New South Wales police announced that they are going to review 88 deaths that could possibly be gay hate cases. 88 people. That would put most serial killers to shame in terms of victim count. Right. And they turned down all interview requests for this documentary. Now... I don't know what impact the TV series Dark Water, which is, again, a dramatic series that we're not actually going to talk about today, had on Australia. But it was clearly coupled with this documentary. Right. But again, this documentary stands on its own. But the Scott Johnson case has come to a head more recently and has made headlines. Because his brother just kept going. Right. And on, this was the, the, the show that we found on yes. YouTube. Australian Story is the name of the series. It's available for us here in the U.S. on it's YouTube. from ABC, yes, which is the Australian broadcast. They have an ABC, too. Exactly. Um, and so we get a big refresh here in this documentary of a lot of the stuff that we already know about Scott and Steve's relationship. All the same players. Everybody yeah. who was in the other. I could not believe because we actually picked the the the, um, the documentary after we had decided to cover the Scott Johnson case. Right. Um, and Jacqueline Millage is the name of the coroner that we've met previously, whose name I kept getting wrong. And she did the inquest on the Bondi Love murders. Her. So because she did the inquest on the Bondi murder, she is approached by the team to take a look at the Scott Johnson case, and she agrees to work with the family. I think she's retired when she agrees to do this. I wasn't no entirely idea. sure. She gets older and older throughout the interviews we see because that's how long this nightmare went on for This these went people. on for 30 years. So um, this is actually the second episode of Australian Story they have done about this case. In 2013, they did a different one, which got a lot of attention on it locally in Australia. Um, but in response to that episode, the cops brush it aside again. So Steve beef, beefs up his team with lawyers this time. Right, on yeah. both sides. And what he said was people wanted to help. The right. team, team Scott, as he called it, just kept growing on right. both sides of the ocean. Yeah. Um, he's also contacted by families whose loved ones died in a similar way, probably some of those 88 victims that we talked about at the end of the last documentary. But the biggest thing that happens 
is the police chief changes. Finally. <laughs> Mick Fuller takes over and becomes the new commissioner, and he does a press conference and says, I believe Scott was murdered. Um... So an actual investigation begins to happen. And sure enough, as soon as that investigation starts to happen, Steve says something changes at the beginning of 2020. Um, de a detective named Inspector Yeomans indicates to uh, Steve that they're getting close. Steve returns to Australia and doubles the reward, which is now at $2 million. I think the reward was a million previously. Right, which started to bring in leads. Yeah. And after 31 and a half years... There is an arrest in the middle of a lockdown pandemic. And the suspect is someone who repeatedly bragged to his girlfriend about bashing and I think even killing, quote, poofters. And she asks him directly, having seen all this coverage, did you kill Scott Johnson? And his response is the only good poofta is a dead poofta. Okay, so that puts him in the crosshairs immediately. Kind of makes him a little suspicious, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she calls and reports him to the police. Now, of course, she is accused by the defense that gathers around the uh, suspect, whose name, incidentally, is also Scott. His name is Scott White. Yeah. That, you know, she's just chasing the reward money, and there's really nothing here. And okay. He's not really guilty, and he's an asshole. And, you know, he just says shit horrible. It doesn't mean any of that. Everybody brags about killing people, right? Right? No. 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 They don't. That's not a thing. Um, and then <laughs> in the middle of the courtroom proceeding, this is a full-on trial. It's proceeding. Full it's happening ahead. in the midst of the pandemic. In the midst of the pandemic. All of this. Scott White just shouts out, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. His lawyers didn't know he was going to no. do it. Nobody, the prosecution didn't know. He was, nobody had any no. idea. The the uh, the Johnson family didn't know he was going to do it. And he was, Steve was there with, I think, three of his sisters. It was, mm -hmm. it was really charged. And they, the, as, as being good, uh, legal system that they are, right. being, jurisprudence and all of that, they stepped back and made sure that he didn't misunderstand or mm -hmm. that he wasn't mentally agitated or that he wasn't. And after reviewing it very carefully and making certain, no, he did not recant, he continued to declare his guilt. He was found competent. He had apparently tried to confess four times previously. I wanted more information on that. What? Who stopped him from confessing? The people, you know? the people who were, yeah, they yeah. didn't want him to admit it because it would have proved that they had not done what they were, because what they're probably really terrified of is Steve Johnson still has all that money and now he can sue them mm -hmm. for not doing their jobs to begin with because Steve Johnson financed this for 30 years. It took 30 years for them to get... This man, mm -hmm. who it took them one year to get once they actually did any investigating. Right. And just to switch over to our um, Siskel and Ebert chairs for a minute, if they were going to do a scripted series, this is the one I wanted to see. I wanted to see one that was about the actual families of the victims. I didn't want to see the show they made, which was about a lady cop who barely had any connection to the case. But yeah. that's a side. Yeah. That's a side. No, but this is a, this is a movie. That someone needs to make this movie. I think there's. Yeah. I can't think yeah. that this movie isn't coming. I think that the fact that it happened during the pandemic may have slowed it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I cannot think but that that's that that isn't coming. One of the great tragedies of this case, and it does hark back to 
um, to uh, to my own thoughts in this particular area in and around homophobia and gay bashing. Um, in addition to Scott White confessing to the crime and saying that the reason that he confessed to the crime was because he wanted to spare Scott Johnson's family mm. the pain of actually going through mm-hmm. the um, the trial itself was he said he was sexually conflicted, that he mm-hmm. was in fact thought he was gay and that part of the reason he participated in the gay bashings um, that he participated in was um, to prove his own sexuality, which mm-hmm. he said he very much questioned and thought he was gay. He had apparently met Scott Johnson at a bar mm-hmm. and said, let's go to this location to, you know, and mm-hmm. got him to go there. And when he got there, um, chased him off the cliff. God. I, uh, yeah. And I, th- but like it was his idea for them to go to, like, Scott Johnson didn't go there because that's where he was headed. Jesus. Scott Johnson went there because yeah. Scott White convinced him to go there. Wow. Scott Johnson just went to a bar to celebrate in a part of the city he hadn't been to before. Wow. God. So none of it was anything that the um that the police had asserted. Not one aspect of the crime. And the person who did the crime was probably another gay person yeah. who was so con convinced mm-hmm. by the prevailing um wisdom thought belief mm-hmm. whatever yeah that he to prove his own sexuality mm-hmm. killed um Scott Johnson and has had to live with it all the rest of his life and is was quite happy to confess and be free of the burden god god 30 yeah. years that brother stuck with it and years. the brother said i hope that this will be the beginning of justice for all of the other people like yeah. who don't have the kind of resources that we had to bring to bear on this. Mm-hmm. That, that certainly, I also hope that that bitch who went on Nightline yeah. and talked the smack that she talked has been held down and had every single blonde hair pulled out of her head <laughs> by a pair of tweezers while she screamed. And, you know, like, what a terrible human being. Mm-hmm. That, what a terrible person. It is the thing that occurs to me again and again. People have been allowed to talk about gay people mm-hmm. any way they wanted to for most of my life. And it's like, how are they feeling about that now? Oh, they're, they're Yeah. <laughs> Like they're complaining about free speech, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's what they're doing. Like, yeah, they're complaining about free speech and using knee-jerk Apparently. defenses. God, so, yeah. what a horrible woman! Yeah, of everybody involved in it, she was the one who upset me the most because it was such a, it was an attack on the family of mm-hmm. the victim for wanting an answer in the death of their own person, mm-hmm. and an assault on everybody involved in the. Um, legal justice system there, yeah, making an effort to do their actual job, mm-hmm. yeah. 
her attitude was, you should take my word for it and yeah. move on. Well, and I, we talk about this a lot, or I bitch about this a lot on the show. I, I don't trust a detective's gut instinct. I want evidence, that and I want just, an investigation. That is just not a thing. Yeah, like this. But we, I worry that sometimes the, the kind of pop culture that I consume valorizes that idea. The determined rogue, Harry Bosch, right? Harry Bosch knows more than anybody else. And I mean, saw, obviously, he, as yeah. part of your investigation, your instincts will guide you on how right. you're going to. But that's not how you make a conclusion. No. If your instincts guide you to find the evidence but to make the conclusion, well, you're right. Fine. These were decisions not to investigate. Right. These were not, we we developed a pile of evidence that could be interpreted one way or another. There was no evidence collected. I mean, the hair and there that was the often guy- evidence destroyed. The hair that John Russell pulled out of his assailant's head was not preserved. It just, and you're going to call that a suicide. I just, it's insane. It's insane. And you're right. It's about dehumanizing a certain group of victims and treating them however you want and ignoring them when they get hurt and die. Because they brought it on themselves yeah. by being whoever they are. It's, uh, you know, it is- I think it is what we're doing to women currently yeah. with, uh, with thanks to our Supreme Court, yeah. our incredibly corrupt Catholic mm-hmm. Supreme Court, because now the Catholics are going after, apparently, yeah. that Nancy Pelosi is going to be denied communion, yeah. even though the Pope says not to do that, mm-hmm. because this jerk from San Francisco believes that he's above the Pope and God and the yeah. authority of this country. The guy who wrote the opinion said there was nothing to um, in the Constitution, and I was like, except for that part about the separation of church and state. Yeah, no, absolutely. Where yeah. we will not choose a state religion. This is about people enforcing their religious beliefs yeah, totally. on other people. If that's not in the Constitution, I may have missed something. Mm-hmm. But I that's what that jackass from the yeah. um, from the Catholic Church and from the Supreme Court actually said in mm-hmm. a legal opinion of the highest court in this country, the most corrupt police uh, Supreme Court since Dred Scott. Just Mm -hmm. horrible. Yes, the Trump court. Mm. All right, that's a whole nother episode, and that's not the what Roberts Court. The, the, I want him. I want that hung on his name. The Roberts Court. His yeah. watch. Yeah. Um. Okay, switching gears. There's, there's a th- I told, I warned you that I looked over some of our old paperwork and our old contracts, and there's going to be a thing we have to do with our episode next week, and you'll be fine. You'll get through it. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Um, It'll be I fine. I need to go to the Facebook It'll page and see what people are posting It'll about this. Like, It'll be fine. Everything's going to be fine. I still don't know what this is, and I still am wondering what the people of the page think you're okay. up to. Okay. Well, it'll be fine. I'm just. I'm promising you it'll be fine. Next week, we are. Go- it's Father's Day. It's our Father's Day right? episode. Which happens during Pride Month. So yes. as part of our Pride Month, last year we did um, Gay Dads. We right. actually found a movie that they made about gay dads. People need to make more movies about gay dads because sure. we would have done another one. Say Uncle. Would be a great movie about mm-hmm. gay dads, I yeah. think. But you know, just me. Yeah. Um, I did write say uncle, so whatever. Mm-hmm. Be about a gay gunkle, but he raises the child as the as a father. Yeah. Anyway, um, so we decided to go with um Joe Bell. Joe Bell is about the father of a gay son, played by Mark Wahlberg, and that's all we're gonna say about the movie. Not until the next son, week. the father. The father of a gay <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that was a dangling modifier. <laughs> 
it would yeah. have de- it would have definitely changed the the movie. The father, I don't know who Mark's father would have been, but he would have been considerably older than Mark. Yes, exactly. So that's next week, along with something Eric is going to have to do, but be fine with. Until then, and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice, and I'm deeply worried, and I'm still Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> and you've been listening to TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.